Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 152, recorded on January 17th, 2020. Today we are going to talk about the sale of Pointy to Google, about what to expect from the Davos gathering, slash conference research, and much more. We have also got an interview with Tommy Anderson, the managing partner at ByFounders. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is life? Hi, Andre. It's going well. Really busy week. We've just come off of lots and lots of tech news happening this week. So the 2020 is just really ramping up. Yeah, I also was really surprised when I saw the uh, number of stories that I had to include in the newsletter this week. It's just amazing. I think I haven't seen uh, seen it like this for uh, for many months. So hopefully that means there's very good things to come for this year in tech and especially European tech. But before we get into the podcast today, um, I wanted to catch us up on something we covered late last year. So back in podcast number 146, I shared the story of Sono Motors, which is the Munich-based solar electric car company that was starting a crowdfunding campaign to raise 50 million euros in one month. Well, they had to extend their original deadline a little bit beyond their expectations, But as this podcast goes live, they have three days to go and have so far raised just over 48 million euros. So I think they might pull this off. And I think it's really exciting news. Um, There was some trepidation that they would do it. But if they pull this off, it's a great sign of things to come, especially in the crowdfunding landscape. Yeah, I think being able to raise uh, 50 million uh, with crowdfunding over, even if, it, if it's a bit more than 50 days uh, that they planned initially, is no mean feat at all. And uh, this means that there is a lot of interest to the topic and a lot of trust uh, to the company from the audience. Speaking of 50 million, there turns out there is another way of uh, uh, getting 50 million uh, euros in funding, which was demonstrated by Bolt. This week, uh, the company uh, raised uh, 50 million in venture debt uh, from uh, the European Investment Bank. And it's an interesting thing, uh, for example, because uh, it's sort of a vote of confidence uh, from uh, the bank itself, uh, because uh, 50 million euros is actually the largest possible facility uh, that uh, the bank can grant as part of its venture debt program, as I just read uh, uh, from the close of business newsletter. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing. And we have been talking about uh, uh, Bolt uh, many times on this uh, podcast. And I recently uh, had a conversation with uh, the co-founder, Marcus Willig. And it seems like the company is really uh, covering a lot of ground right now. And something that um, they mentioned also in the newsletter is part of this vote of confidence was that a lot of Bolt's business sectors are profitable. So the whole company as a whole is not quite there yet, but a number of their um, business segments are profitable. And that's something that I learned at firsthand when I was at Bolt's offices in Estonia last summer. Uh, they're operating um, across Europe, but also in Africa, which is a really a promising area for for them and for their company. Yeah, well, when I talked to uh, to Marcus, it kind of uh, seemed like uh, 
Uh, he's taken pride in being very real about uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, profitability and general economic viability of different parts of the business. And I think he told uh, repeatedly to the media that he doesn't think that e-scooters, for example, are a potentially profitable business. And uh, Bolt is basically doing this just because it's an important part of uh, urban mobility and not because they want to, to make money out of it. It's a really interesting company and uh, great uh, seeing that they are getting more funding. So uh, going into the agenda and talking about uh, what happened uh, over the past week, I wanted to give a little bit more detail about the acquisition of Pointy, which is a startup from Dublin, and it just has been bought by Google. Initially, the media reported that the amount paid by the corporation was over 80 million US dollars, but then apparently uh, we got some new details and the current consensus around different news outlets uh, seems to be at around 160 million US dollars. An interesting detail about this deal, by the way, is that it's the second startup that the founder, Mark Cummins, has sold to Google. The first one was called Plink. It was back in 2010, and it was also Google's first acquisition in the British Isles, according to TechCrunch. So what's even more interesting though, is that a few years before founding Plink, Cummins actually applied for a job at Google, but didn't make it. They never called him back. And after that, he decided to stay in academia and work on a PhD. And during that time, he founded Plink, which was a visual recognition startup, and it had nothing to do at all with what Pointy is about. So what is it actually all about then? Uh, Pointy has built a solution uh, that consists of both software and hardware, and this solution targets primarily small retailers, so small brick-and-mortar uh, stores uh, located uh, near you and me and anyone living in European towns. Uh, the hardware part of this startup is so-called Pointy Box, and uh, that thing connects to a barcode scanner at the point of sale in a store. And then Anytime that an item is scanned, uh, this software uploads uh, this item to a catalog of sorts, which is online and which is available on Pointy's own website, so that people uh, could find it just by Googling. Basically, the goal here is to allow uh, people around the store to easily find out what these small physical locations are actually selling. What's unusual here, uh, uh, technology-wise at least, is that as a seller, you don't even need to enter any data on how many of each item you have in stock. Uh, it turns out that Pointy will somehow figure it out by itself through some sort of an AI algorithm that's based on purchase patterns. I had no idea that it was even possible, but uh, according to media reports, it's actually quite accurate. Now, the Pointy box itself is a, pre is a pretty pricey thing. It costs uh, 700 US dollars, uh, but there is also a free app uh, that uh, uh, Pointy has uh, produced, and this app does exactly the same thing as the Pointy box, but it can only be integrated uh, with uh, the selected few uh, point-of-sale models. So Pointy as a company was founded in 2014 and it has been quite popular in the US. It has raised 19 million US dollars to date and it has also been partnering with Google since 2018. And as far as I understand, most of this partnership is about powering the feature that's called What's in Store. I don't think this thing actually exists here in the Netherlands. I've never seen it, but it seems like in the US you can actually see 
what's in stock in a store near you uh, right from the so-called knowledge panel on uh, on Google Maps, uh, which you see when you just uh, choose the store on the map. And that's a pretty neat feature. I think uh, it would be great to uh, have something like this in the Netherlands. So I hope it's uh, coming to us at some point. So for now, Pointy will keep operating its offices in Dublin, and it says that it will uh, keep working on its platform, while Google on its side uh, will keep rolling out Pointy's technology uh, to power its uh, own features. So all in all, I would say it's a good boost uh, for the Irish tech ecosystem. And what's also a great thing is that this deal is public, because uh, most acquisitions by large tech firms, they happen without media announcements and media attention and we discussed this uh, problem some time ago on the podcast and i will actually leave the link uh, to uh, that episode in the show notes because it was an interesting conversation uh, where uh, natalie outlined uh, a bunch of issues that um, may come up because of that so have a listen and do let us know uh, what you think so natalie what do you think about uh, pointy and uh, uh, what it means for the irish ecosystem yeah, I think it, it's really a, a great news item. And also because there was so much news that came out of Irish Tech last week. So we just learned that Slack will be opening a really huge office um, in, in town um, with over, I think, 1,100 new hires. And LinkedIn is opening a new campus as well. And they'll be hiring on 4,000 um, new employees in Dublin so Dublin is absolutely booming. I don't know where everyone is going to live um, that is going to be working at these big companies. But what we've seen, which is, I think, one of the most exciting outcomes of having so many of the, these big multinationals there, is that oftentimes those employees end up starting their own startups and spinning out of, of these corporates. And that's why you have see such a, a vibrant ecosystem happening there. It's really, really fascinating to watch. Yeah, that's great. Uh, do you think this influx is connected to Brexit in any way? Like companies opening offices and all? So I've been having some conversations with uh, friends and colleagues in Dublin last week, and it does seem like there is a number of uh, companies that are actually moving to Ireland that might have considered moving to the UK, um, and they're finding a lot of good company there. So um, I'm not sure if this deal, I don't think this deal had anything to do with Brexit, but um, as we spoke about before, the Irish tech ecosystem and also the tax regime is still very friendly to corporates and global companies coming. So that's part of what is really um, a, a very strong selling point for um, for companies that might have considered the UK. Yeah, certainly. Right. So Natalie, what did you want to talk about today? Yeah. So this week that this podcast goes live, the world's leading figures will be congregating in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. So these kind of suit and tie events and circles of influence and political networks of insiders like the WEF used to be something that once the outsider and rebel world of technology used to shun. However, this changed a long time ago. And today, technology runs throughout all of the seven themes of this year's Davos meeting. 
And from healthy futures to focusing on health innovation to society and the future of work to better business and tech for good, it is clear how technology and importantly, those who build, produce, sell and use that technology will be prime conversations um, this week at Davos. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the conversations that that are going to maybe um, be taking place there. And we might be thinking, well, what what does this matter? Why, why should we care this event with all of these bureaucrats and at a fancy ski resort that I likely will never get tickets to? And I think if that's kind of your first impression, that association is more than fair, especially when you're looking at some of these panels and discussions, you see this kind of contrast of billionaires talking about inclusiveness and those people with inherited wealth getting to talk about their perspective about diversity um, and a multitude of other topics. But it's also in this meeting that helps give a good idea about some of the priorities that, that the world's key policymakers um, have on their mind and are considering. And something that I found very telling this year is that they're devoting significantly less attention to the state of startups and the entrepreneurial ecosystem as they have in the past. So in 2018 and 2019, last year, startups took a big role on the agenda at Davos. And this year, you will not find any panels devoted to startups or the startup ecosystem. But I wanted to share three topics of conversation that will surely be on on the topic for discussion at Davos. And the first of these is technical sovereignty. And we've talked about how technical sovereignty remains a big priority for the new European Commission president, who will be a fixture at Davos this year. But she's not the only one that will be sure to keep it on the agenda of discussions. In an interview with the Financial Times, Angela Merkel said, quote, I believe that chips should be manufactured in the European Union, that Europe should have its own hyperscalers, and that it should be possible to, to produce battery cells, end quote. And batteries and energy capabilities is something that the European Union has made more and more of a priority, something that we've talked about on this podcast before, but also something that we should think about when it comes to technical sovereignty, of course, is this conversation around 5G. Last week, the UK got closer to making a decision about Huawei in the country's 5G networks, and it seems to indicate that they will be getting closer to letting Huawei be a part of it which is likely to anchor the country's U.S. rivals and be another focus of conversation at Davos. Next is taxes for the big tech. And speaking of the U.S., the next big issue of conversation is likely to concern France's digital services tax, as the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire will meet the U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. The U.S. government has threatened tariffs on $2.4 billion worth of French products in response to the digital service tax, which will hit U.S. tech giants such as Google, Facebook, and Amazon. The U.K. is also set to institute a digital services tax starting this spring. And so there are some questions. Is there a trade war on the horizon? Well, I know from here in Scotland, we've had a number of Scottish whiskey producers head over to the U.S. in an attempt to smooth the waters and prevent trade war. Digital taxes are something that have been a perennial issue without a great solution. And we've investigated them on this podcast previously in episodes 94, 133, and 141 if you want a refresh. But the big showdown will take place on Thursday, the 23rd, in a panel 
How to Tax the Digital Economy, which everyone can watch online. And finally, the last topic of discussion I wanted to talk about today is privacy and data. And this is something that's directly related to the previous discussion over a digital service tax. So in this age where there's more and more data than ever, Europe remains proud and committed to GDPR, the flagship regulation on data privacy and protection. But as we've covered previously, that enforcement still remains difficult. This was brought to the fore this week when a new research paper by scholars from MIT, Aarhus University, and University College London collaborated to release a paper that found only 11.8% of consent management platforms used by popular websites in Europe met minimal GDPR requirements. Data privacy is something that really does separate Europe from others on the geopolitical stage. Last week, Angela Merkel in the same interview said, and I will quote, I firmly believe that personal data does not belong to the state or to companies. It must be ensured that the individual has sovereignty over their own data and can decide with whom and for what purpose they share it, end quote. So when it comes to data, there's a difficult balance between privacy and profit. If the data belongs to the users, how can firms use that data to make money off of it? This is where Margaret Vestager and the EU's competition policy has played such a substantial international role, and it continues to be a hot button politically between the EU and other states, but also internally when it comes to competitiveness for European firms. This was a topic of a piece by Peter Lockbiller, the Global Director of Public Affairs for Booking.com that was released last week in advance of the summit. So I expect this will also remain another big issue on the table this week at Davos. So I would encourage everyone to just take the time to check out their live stream, which is always very good um, and give you the chance to hear some of the big conversations and you can follow along from the comfort of your own home. It sounds really interesting. I don't think I will be around uh, on those days, but I would definitely like to watch some of these conversations. But do you have any particular opinion as to why startups are not there anymore? What's happened? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, but one of the things that they really use this summit to do is to advance different um, political priorities, but also social initiatives. And one of the really key initiatives that they're using the summit to advance is about climate change. And Greta Thunberg will take center stage a number of times. And they're really kind of making this um, this point, especially with the fires in Australia, that the climate emergency really is what, what we should be focusing on. There's also this theme for tech for good. So looking at social impact companies, but not necessarily anything about cultivating the ecosystem or understanding how to support more entrepreneurs. It just isn't something that is specifically outlined in the topics this year. Do you think that having been there last year actually helped any startups or any particular industries or the ecosystem in general? So something that I think when you have startups in the room and you have startups on the agenda, of course, it focuses the attention on their impact and what kind of things they're actually doing to make change. And the fact that we're seeing that the priorities are shifting somewhat might not necessarily mean that startups aren't important, but there might be different ways to um, kind of advance some of the great work that startups are doing. 
Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, let's see what uh, happens during uh, Davos this year. Let's try to watch live stream as much as we can. I mean, I do have to say, I often uh, kind of say that, yeah, I will watch this live stream and that live stream and I will watch those conversations on stage. I almost never do. Do you? I have watched um, a number of them when they're related directly to startups. I don't know um, how this will be this year. I just hope we won't have a trade war over big tech, but it <laughs> might make things quite interesting to watch. I'm not sure, but we'll see what it goes. It it, it does start very early, um, all of the proceedings. So um, sometimes before 8 a.m., which is very early here in oh, the wow. UK. So I probably won't be able to watch them live. <laughs> right. So next up in our today's agenda is the featured interview of the episode, and that's a conversation with Tommy Anderson, uh, the managing partner at uh, BioFounders. And I recorded this conversation back at Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen. Let's listen together, and we'll be back in 10 minutes. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degelow reporting today from Copenhagen for Tech.eu, and I'm catching up with Tommy Andersen from ByFounders. Hi, Tommy. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure. So uh, we talked uh, before, I think, uh, but only on the phone, and we at TechEU covered uh, the, the first fund uh, that you raised. But still, just uh, quickly, what is ByFounders and how are you different from every other early stage fund out there? So I think the key differentiator of BiFounders is we call ourselves a four-founders, BiFounders fund in the sense that we, we're not just a financial institution that brings startups to, uh, sorry, money to startups. We bring hopefully a lot more because we are founder-led and founder-driven fund with all the aspiration that is behind that. As you know, previous founders, we want to you know, fund the next generation of startups with global ambitions. Right. So what does it mean? What does it mean in practice? In practice, you know, by founders means that, you know, first of all, we have a group of accomplished founders, you know, investing in the fund. So 50 plus people all invested in the fund. They provide deal flow. They provide, you know, due diligence help. They provide, you know, networking. They provide, you know, exit opportunities. Kind of like a wingman to the fund and to the portfolio companies that we invest in. So we try not to just be a check for the startups, but also a lot of, you know, aid around, you know, the check. Right. And you raised uh, 100 million euros this, yes. this year. And you are planning to make how many investments from? So we are Nordic and Baltic focused fund, and we're supposed to do 40 investments over the next four years. And we're two years into operation. We've done roughly 20, so we're on pace. Okay, that's great. So uh, how big are actually the stakes of the, of the collective members uh, as compared to institutional investors and the uh, VAX fund, which is also an investor for you? Yeah, the 50 founders have, you know, uh, they, their, their commitment totals roughly 10% of the fund, so roughly 10 million euros. And we have a range they can invest within. And, you know, so when they invest, they don't pay carrier management fee. They just, you know, they, 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 they provide their help to the fund. Right. So, and do you actually think that uh, a VC has to have entrepreneurial experience? I think it helps. <laughs> it, it, it helps in the selection of the best startups because, you know, when we, when we talk to a founder, we're kind of like eye to eye. You know, if you, if you come with a financial background, you don't really have any idea of what's it like to be in a startup. What's it like to be not to be able to pay salaries in 14 days time. We know that. Most of us tried that. So we know the ups and downs of being in the startup. I think that helps in the selection process, but also in the actual aid that we can give the portfolio companies afterwards, after we invested. Right. Hmm. But still, I mean, there are quite a few 
successful VCs uh, uh, whose uh, partners would not have entrepreneurial experience at all. Right? No, that's true. But then they probably surround them with people that has it. I think the, we're kind of like one of the first funds that are in a, is, is a, is a founder-led and founder-driven fund. We think, it's, we think it gives us an edge in the market uh, versus the other funds. And I also think it, it, it's becoming a, a competitive edge in the sense that, you know, the good startups... No, there is money everywhere. You can get a check from everywhere. So I think it adds as a bonus to what we can do for a startup. Right. And what's your sweet spot in terms of stage? Stage, uh, we thought we were going to be a seed in Series A, but then we looked at our pockets and found out, you no, know, Series A territory has become so expensive, we can't do that. Or we can do a pro rata, but, you know, we're a seed, uh, seed stage fund. Right. And uh, I also was at the Investor Day yesterday and uh, uh, listened to uh, the panel about the pre-seed funding issue. So uh, can, can you uh, recap on that a little bit? What's, uh, what's going on? Well, I think what used to be a Series A round now is a seed round in terms of money put in. And uh, what used to be a seed round is now a pre-seed round. So, so the stakes are getting higher, the amounts are getting bigger, the valuations are growing up. Right. So I think, you know, to that extent, you know, everything is like being pushed down in the market. And what you see now, maybe the, where, where the clash is between the angels and the institutional money happens at the pre-seed and even the seed stage. Uh, there was one question yesterday, is the pre-seed stage dead in the sense that no wealthy angels, you know, previous entrepreneurs or previous startup owners who've gotten their wealth out by, you know, IPOing or whatever they had, they're now, you know, buying their way into the good startups being angels or angel syndicates, Nordic makers here in the Nordic is a good example, you know, wealthy 10 guys, you know, doing investments as a seed style fund, but with private money. So I think the pre-seed stage is the battleground now, you know, to get access to, to the first, uh, or to the best startups. But you are not competing there. Well, we do foot in the door type investments. So it's not a, a, a strategic uh, stage for us to be at, but sometimes to get access to do the seed round, you need to be at the pre-seed stage. Right. So if we look at the Nordics and then wider at the European uh, tech uh, landscape, what do you think is not there in order to build like a healthy ecosystem? Do we like do we like entrepreneurs? Do we lack money on any stages? What's uh... I don't think the Nordic as a whole lacks anything. The ecosystem has grown considerably stronger the last five to seven years. I think you know the, the four Nordic countries, the five Nordic countries, you know the Baltics are catching up quite quickly. So I think, you know, we're 30 million people. We have critical mass on our own now. You see all the foreign funds are now, you know, you know, setting up shop either in Stockholm or Copenhagen or Helsinki. So money-wise, you know, even resource-wise, I think we have the ingredients to be a healthy ecosystem. Yeah. Right. And I think I read in one of the previous interviews that you said the following, uh, that today you don't need to relocate your business to get funding and be successful. And this is a trend that we are increasingly seeing and contributing to in the Nordics. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to raise money, it was super hard to do it locally here. And you saw a lot of good people moving to the U.S. Silicon Valley to get the first round of money. I think in these days you can raise maybe three to four of your initial rounds, even you know up towards a Series B and onwards, and then Series C and onwards. You know, then you probably have to go abroad, right? But the first money in is definitely here now. So uh, does it mean that, for example, if Spotify was founded today, it would not have uh, had to uh, move effectively to the U.S. and? Uh... Well, there's two things in moving. One is moving your, you know, legal entity, right? Being that in Stockholm or Luxembourg or Copenhagen, where it may be, 
And the other thing, you know, where, where are your developers? Where is your sales organization? Once you become a global company, of course, you need to have critical mass of people in the markets where you are present, right? So as you grow, you will naturally globalize your company and get, like Spotify, a huge New York operation because all the labels are there and the, the artists are in the U.S., right? So it also depends on the business and where your customers or your users are. Right. Uh, so, and uh, at Buy Founders, uh, are you looking at uh, any vertical in the industry at all, or do you have any special uh, special interest in any of them? So, we deliberately took a wide mandate when we raised the fund. So, we don't have any verticals that we're you know specifically you know targeting. We're a tech fund in the classical sense. So, I think you know eighty percent of our investment is going to be software services, you know, and data, and maybe twenty percent is going to be hardware with a s- strong software or service component. A classical tech fund in that sense. No biotech, no medtech, no pharma, no, I mean, that kind of stuff. Very you know, working uh, capital intensive, but more classical tech. And how do you keep the members of the collective still closely involved with, uh, with startups? Yeah. So I think we've come, so we've been two years into operation now. I think one of the things that we've acknowledged is that you cannot have 50 Uh, you know, founders or startups, uh, startup founders, you know, being active at the same time. And it doesn't make sense either. So we see what I would call rings around the funds. There's an inner ring with two thirds of the, uh, of the collective, very active, answers calls, answers emails. There's a middle ring. People answer regularly calls, regularly email, but not all the time. And there's an outer ring with people, you know, busy with their own businesses or what, whatever they'd be doing, you know, rarely answers calls, rarely answers emails. The thing is, people move between the rings. Okay. So people that used to be very inactive become active because they either they step down from their own startup, you know, they get another job, you know, they change career. So I think what we have critical mass in having 50-plus members now. So it doesn't really have to be every one of them being active at the same time. They can move between the rings, and that's the experience we have now. Right, and uh, what or what's their involvement like? What do they do? So very, very uh, different. You know, some of them are very good at providing deal flow because they're angel investors on their own, so they provide super deal flow to us as a fund. They co-invest with the fund. They are like this radar of what's going on in the ecosystem, and then we also get a lot of help in you know vetting investments. So if we have a specific investment within health tech that we may not know a thing about. We can reach out to a couple of people in the collective and say, hey, this area is that interesting. You have 10 companies done it before the startup we're looking at. So it's a way of using, having a vetting mechanism in front of the fund. And that's what we use them a lot for deal flow and vetting deals. And after the investment has been made, do they work uh, with the uh, startups from the portfolio? Also, we assign at least one or two from the collective to each portfolio company who are supposed to be like aiding the, the, the startup with, you know, Operational stuff, you know, with opening their networks, you know, getting access to technology partners or other VCs or whatever it may clients even. So we're trying to be an all-round 360, you know, wingman around the portfolio company using the collective to, to do so. Right. So you got two more years to make 20-ish more investments. Sure. What happens afterwards? Uh, you start a fund too. <laughs> Because, you know, once you run out of uh, your active investment, you, you can only reinvest in the stuff you already invested in. So if you want to do new stuff, you have to start a new fund. We're probably going to be doing that. Do you think it's going to be different in terms of mandate size tickets? Depends on the macro climate. You know, everyone says that we're at the top of the current financial cycle. 
two years from now, it may be another story. So uh, come back in one and a half year and ask me again. Okay, sounds good. I will uh, make a mark on the calendar. I will send you an invite. <laughs> thank you. Tommy, thank you so much uh, for your answers and uh, enjoy the rest of uh, Tech Barbecue. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechU, episode number 152. We're back uh, from the interview pause, and now it's time for the recommendation part. So I wanted to suggest uh, today uh, for you to read a brief piece that was posted by the Slush Conference on its blog uh, with the great name Soaked. Uh, the piece outlines a few trends that conference teams saw when it analyzed applications of 15,000 startups uh, that wanted to come to the event uh, from 24. 14 to 2019. So shallow as this may seem, I think it's an interesting body of data which can show meaningful correlations and trends. And in this first piece, I, can, I have to say that most of the things are pretty predictable. Things like AI and machine learning are going up and the number of startups in the IoT segment is sort of stagnant and uh, VR and AR have seen uh, its peak already and so on and so forth. But I would do still uh, suggest you to check it out now Nevertheless, maybe you will find something surprising or at least reaffirm your understanding of the startup world around us. And I am now certainly looking forward to reading more research from Slush. And uh, I would also uh, like to see similar pieces produced by other European conferences because I am sure that every one of them has a lot of data to dig into. So I'm looking now at Web Summit, first of all, at uh, the next web conference and uh, many others Look into your treasure trove and uh, try to see uh, whether you can help the ecosystem by publishing some of the data and analyzing it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good call to action. I know the Pioneers Conference d does have a, a research arm. They, of course, sadly, um, very sadly, um, ended their their conference last year, but they have published some of their their data. But I think what's interesting about this first initial piece from Slush is that it really does a good job of illustrating how we talk about startups and how we talk about the work we're doing. Um, in our startups is changing. So kind of some of the findings that they have, well, the point about mobile is uh, redundant. We don't talk about mobile anymore because there's this expectation that everything is mobile. And also um, we've seen the the data before in other contexts about how AI is, is really kind of eating the world. But when you really look at it, are these companies actually using AI? There's always this question about it. But if you include that, uh, if you say you're doing AI, that's something that's become more and more predominant. So um, it does really show that things are changing and especially how we talk about startups is changing as well. So it'd be very interesting to see what their next releases are all about. Yeah, certainly. I think it's actually a great way to to look at it. It's uh, not necessarily startups themselves, but uh, the way we describe them and they describe themselves in this case. Right. Natalie, your turn then. Yeah. So um, for my recommendation this week, uh, before I go into that, first, I have an announcement and it's very hard for me to say, but this is going to be the last TechEU podcast that I'm going to be co-hosting uh, with you, Andre. And this was a very hard decision for me to make. And I would have liked things to have been different, but it's even harder to know that all of you are out there listening. And I really can't thank everyone enough for listening. And I've really greatly appreciated doing this podcast, especially hearing um, from you when I've 
out at events. It's just really been such a, a real treat. And I hope all of you will stay with Andre as he continues to steward the TechEU podcast forward um, this year. We first started doing this podcast together in September 2018. And one of our stories at that time to kind of give you, to take you back um, was on a little startup that was called Taxify, which speaks to how much things have changed in the European tech landscape since then. So I'm not saying bye forever. Maybe there's a chance I'll pop in from time to time, but I'm ready to pursue a really special new project, which will give me a chance to do more to help support early stage founders in Europe and beyond. So for my recommendation, I just wanted to leave you with a few parting words. And it was very difficult for me to know what to sign off with. Um, I wrote this and rewrote it so many times, but ultimately I decided to keep things very short. Uh, but when I came back to Europe in 2016 to do research for my PhD, I connected with and listened to literally hundreds of founders from all across Europe. And I continued this work when I joined TechEU. And it has been an absolute gift to travel to nearly every European country speaking with so many of you, including so many founders that are on the margin of the ecosystem. Those of you that are trying to break in, those that might never feature in the media, but who are trying and working very hard every day to build something special. Um, and I want to thank all of you for sharing your pain points, your struggles, sharing your wins. Uh, I've seen firsthand what you've sacrificed to give up to do the work that you're doing and the impact you're trying to make. And I have a real incredible respect for those of you that are trying to build and create things. And I've seen how hard it is. A lot of times when we consider European tech, there's this tendency to look at how Europe compares to elsewhere or how the countries and regions stack up to one another in terms of entrepreneurship. But I know each of you out there building and starting things, you're not measuring yourselves that way. You're just continuing to build, create, and innovate. And that's really, at the end of the day, what matters. And even though I won't be on this podcast anymore, I will continue to follow what you're building and creating. And I can't wait to see what you all come up with and maybe help you on your journey. And on that note, Thank you, Andre, for having me on. And thank you for taking this podcast forward in the future. And I want to thank all the listeners who have kept it going and who have made doing this for 66 episodes now such a great and enjoyable experience. And if you see me anywhere, do say hi. I will really miss all of you. Uh, absolutely. This is this is really hard. I mean, this is this is really hard for, for, for me as well to say goodbye. And I I cannot thank you enough for uh, having done so much uh, for this podcast. It has been a pleasure. It has been an honor to be, to be doing this uh, with you. And I certainly do hope that I will be able to lure you back uh, uh, once in a while to talk about uh, some of your favorite topics. Thank you so much. And it's really been such a fun thing to do. And I would have loved to keep going, but it's just time to, to move on to new things, which um, will be announced shortly. And for the record, I have to complain that even I don't know what Natalie is going to do next because she would not uh, uh, tell uh, neither me nor any other of her colleagues. <laughs> so I'm very much looking forward to learning about this, uh, same as uh, I'm sure uh, rest of the listeners. 
As for now, it is time for us to wrap it up. I hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Natalie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for being here for uh, last year and almost, uh, what, five months. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andre. And thank all of you for, for listening. I really have um, appreciated all the great comments, kind words, tweets. Um, it's really been a pleasure to, to share this with you every week. Enjoy the rest of your week, everyone, and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,